All right. Well, thank y'all for coming again. Um, we're going to uh, continue through a, a short um, a Sunday night series on the concept of worship. And last week, uh, we talked about what is worship. Um, and this week, we're going to talk about a false worship. False worship. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But uh, as we do that, let's turn to the Lord one more time and ask Him for a blessing. Lord, uh, thank you again tonight for your love for us. And Lord, you have made us to worship. You have made us to know you and to be known by you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us, as Jesus taught us, to worship in spirit and truth. Help us, Lord, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual worship. I pray that all that we do would be done to the glory of God, that our whole lives would be, Lord, uh, worship and offering for you. So I pray you would help us do that, and I pray that tonight, Lord, uh, wherever there is false worship in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would help us repent and come back to you and give all our hearts and our energies and affections to the one who has saved us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1. But it's going to be a little bit before we, we get there tonight, but you can go ahead and turn there. Like I said, last week we discussed the, just the, generally what is worship. And if you remember, I took two words uh, that the Bible, that, the, that in, in the, the New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament are sometimes translated worship. And the first one meant an awe and reverence for God. And the second one meant um, service to God. But sometimes both of these things are translated as worship. And what we see then is that the worship that God wants from us is both, it's both affectional, that is, it engages our hearts and it engages our minds, and it is a, the seeking Him with our hearts. It is an appropriate response to Him, an appropriate fear of Him when we rightly understand who He is infinite, omnipotent, outside of time and space itself, ruler, sustainer, creator of all things. And when we understand who he is with respect to who we are, finite, dust, <laughs> rebellious dust. So it is both the, our apprehension of God and our, our mental and emotional apprehension of God when we rightly understand that, and it is also our service to God. And we talked about how the worship that God seeks is not uh, what so many think it is and uh, to fulfill some kind of rite and rituals and to actually offer literal sacrifices or offer up incense or, or you know, uh, pray certain kinds of prayers, thinking that just the act itself will commend us to God. But rather, the kind of worship God wants is for us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. The kind of worship he wants is not the fat of rams and goats, but it is, uh, uh, James said, religion that is pure and undefiled is this, helping or or orphans and widows in their distress. 
It's loving people. It's meeting needs. It is being kind and generous and loving and caring about people, uh, their, their physical needs and their spiritual needs. Offering up our whole lives as worship. But we also see in the Bible all kinds of false worship. In fact, when you look through the Bible, you see that over and over again, uh, the Jews, the, the Israelites, would always turn to worship false gods. And it's kind of bewildering to us. You know, you're like, come on, guys. You know, you just went through the Red Sea, you know. <laughs> I mean, come on. Are you really, did you really make a golden calf? You know, are you really worshiping these idols? But they did. And the truth is, is false worship is all around us. Idolatry is all around us. And so we need to think about it and understand how to identify it in our lives. The first thing that I want us to see tonight is that we were made to worship. And this is important to understand. In Genesis 1, verses 27 to 28, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So think about it. God made us in his image, not the other way around. We're made in God's image. God's not made in our image. We exist to reflect God in the world. God does not exist to reflect us. And so, just the very fact of creation says something incredible about why we exist. Think about it. No, 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 nothing with a mind, nothing rational ever creates something really for no purpose. You know, even some of this um, postmodern artwork that looks like, you know, a, a paint factory exploded on a canvas, okay? Well, people still... Even that, to me, that's useless. But somebody made that because they think it looks good. In other words, anybody that's rational, you never create something that's useless. God didn't create humans for no purpose. He created us for a reason. And he created us to act and work and think in a certain way. Just like we create anything else. You know? Just like I've said before. you You don't try to unscrew a screw with a hammer. Because it doesn't make sense, right? It wasn't made for it. And so it's clear then by virtue of creation that there is a God who made us, that it is of utmost importance that, he figure, that we figure out what he made us for and how he made us to work. And God's authority in the Bible is, is very clear over us. <clears throat> so... God gave Adam and Eve, when he made them, he made them to reflect his image in the world. And he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And he also commanded them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fact that God gave them that command, I think, implies lots of things. It implies, first it shows that God has authority over us. By virtue of being creator, that means he gets to tell us what to do, not the other way around. Right? If you're in the room, if you're in a room with an omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign ruler of the universe outside of time and space itself, and then there's you, 
you don't get to rock, paper, scissor for him to see who's the boss. You just don't. It's not how it works. He, by definition, gets to make the rules. And since he commanded Adam, uh, to, to th- he gave Adam this command, it's, it's clear that he wanted us to trust him. He wanted us to, he wanted us to take him at his word and to understand that, if, that, hey, if God says no, he's probably got a good reason for it. If God says no, I shouldn't do it even if I don't always understand. And so this means that God gave Adam a purpose, that we, we have a purpose. We, we are to respect him. We are to honor him. We are to serve him. We are to obey him. We are to trust him. Well, what is that except worship? Trusting, loving, serving, obeying God is worship. So it's clear then that God made us to worship and besides that, think about the context of the garden. It says that when the man hid from God, God, they hid from him when they heard him walking in the cool of the day. What is that? Well, surely that, if, if God was walking in the cool of the day, surely then that wasn't the first time he had done that. In other words, God walked with Adam in the garden. In other words, the garden was created to be a place where man dwelt with God in unhindered fellowship. That's what the garden was for. In other words, the garden was a temple. And in fact, it's very interesting if you read the Bible uh, carefully and follow the clues, because there's actually lots of evidence that shows us that the garden was in fact a, a temple, was in fact a representative place of where of God's intended purpose for man, that is to, for man, as I just read at the beginning of the service, God's intended purpose was to dwell with man and be his God and we be his people in a, in a world free from sin. And so think about these parallels between the garden and the temple. Both the garden and the, the tabernacle slash temple, uh, their entrances faced the east, and both were guarded by, by angels. The entrances were guarded by angels. In the temple, if you remember, in the temple, there's the lampstand, which the Jews call the menorah, is designed as a flowering tree. And the temple was decorated with all kinds of plant fruit and flower sculptings. Why would Solomon do that? Why would Solomon decorate the temple in that way? Why would Solomon decorate the temple like a garden? Why? Because he's, he, he's pointing us back to Eden. We were supposed to be with God in Eden, in the garden, as his people, and he is our God. And the temple, the temple was the first step in bringing that back to reality, even though it wasn't the final fulfillment. And another thing that I think is very fascinating is that in Genesis, Adam is told to work and to keep the garden. To work and to keep the garden. That's two Hebrew words. To work and to keep. There's only one other context in the entire Bible when those same two words are put together. Work and keep. When they're put together uh, in that same way to work and keep, there's only one other place in the Bible where they're used. It's when God commands the Levites to take care of the tabernacle. He says to work and keep it. You see? 
So you see what God is doing? God is saying and he's showing us that the, the Eden was to be a temple. And we, humanity, were to be God's priests and to serve him in a world free from sin where he is our God and we are his people. In other words, we were made to worship. But as we all know, sin has misdirected our worship. That is, when Satan came up to tempt Adam and Eve, he put, a, he put, a, he put up a word contrary to God's word. And then Adam and Eve, in that moment, they had to decide whether... And think about, that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil means. They, he, they had to decide whether they would trust God that he knows what's right and wrong, or whether they would claim for themselves the authority to know good from evil apart from God. And in that moment, they decided that they could choose for themselves what is right and wrong apart from the word of God, and they disobeyed the Lord. And because of that, the Bible says that we are broken. The Bible says that we all have fallen natures. And this brings us to our text in Romans chapter 1, where we see that sin misdirects our worship. But I'm just, I'm just going to read it if you've turned there. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So there's several things that we see from this text, but the overarching point is this, is that sin misdirects our worship. And so the first thing we see in this passage that's important to understand is that there is universal knowledge of God. That's in verse 19 through 21. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Uh, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world so that they are without excuse. That is, no one can claim to not know there's a God. Nobody can claim that. A lot of people claim that, but God says, no. God who searches hearts, who knows the, the minds and hearts of people, he says that everybody who can see creation, who can understand it, they, everybody inherently and intuitively knows that God exists. Well then, Chad, Pastor, why are there atheists then? Well, God tells us. Verse uh, 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness 
suppress the truth. In other words, you, everyone knows this is true. You can't convince something, you can't convince somebody of something that they don't want to believe is true. It doesn't, if they don't want to believe it's true, the evidence doesn't matter. You could, you could put it right in front of their faces and they won't believe. And the Bible says that that is the state of humanity. Apart from God, in our sin nature, you, me, everybody, before the grace of God came into our life, we were like this. We, we all, like our first parents, we want to be autonomous from God. In other words, I don't want somebody else telling me what to do. Everybody's like that. My four-year-old's like that. The Bible calls it sin. No one will be excused on the last day for not worshiping God. Um, you know, I, I've heard of a famous atheist, and he said, you know, if you face God on the last day and, and he's really real, what will you say to him? And he'll say, you know, uh, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe. And God will say, actually, I don't even think God will say anything. I think God will just look at him and he'll know. I really do. When we stand before God, when we stand before God, see, so many people we give, and we, we do too, we give all kinds of excuses for our sin. We do. All kinds of excuses. But there will be one day when we stand before God and He looks us in the eye and we'll be speechless. We, we think we're so smart. We think we're so clever. We think we're so cute. When you're in the presence of God, you won't be clever or cute. You'll be speechless. Because you'll know that he knows. So we all know there's a God. There is a universal knowledge of God. Yet, the Bible says, because of sin, we refuse to honor God as God. And then it darkens our thinking. He says it in verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. People don't, people don't want to honor God. We want to take the credit. We don't, we don't want to be accountable to somebody else, and we don't want someone else getting the credit that we deserve, that we think we deserve. We don't want to honor him. We don't want to give thanks to God. And so, we, and so what the Bible says when we reject this innate knowledge of God that we all have, the Bible says what it leads to is insanity. It says that we become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. And we've talked about this to some degree before. The most fundamental fact in the universe is that God is. So if you deny that most basic fact, then basically all you cannot come to a correct conclusion about anything else. That doesn't mean you can't know certain things to be true. What it means is that you misinterpret things that are true. To give an example, gravity. We can all observe gravity. I mean, 
You know, you don't have to be a Christian to understand that gravity exists. The problem is, is what about it? Why does it exist? What does it mean? Well, if you don't know God, then you have to basically say, well, it just, just, there was a big boom and all of a sudden it just happened to work out that gravity works. And, it, and there's a gravitational constant that happens to be so perfectly precise that it allows for biological life in the world. So that the, so that the universe didn't um, uh, implode in upon itself or, or, or separate too uh, quickly so that it cooled off too fast. Which is what, all the, which is what the physicists say. <laughs> you either say it's, a, it's an incredible cosmic accident... Or you say it was perfectly planned by an all-wise God to create a universe in which sustainable life could exist to be a theater for his glory. You see, it's the same thing, gravity. But how you interpret it is totally different based on your underlying view of the world. So, in other words, if you don't have the most basic bottom presuppositional view of the world correct then you, you must, by definition, interpret everything else incorrectly. If you get God wrong, then you get everything else wrong as well. And this is, this is no more evident than in, in our modern culture, in the, in the, in the place of, uh, uh, of morality. The same people who say there's no such thing as absolute truth. You know... What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. But guess what? When you do something that they think is wrong, <laughs> outrage. In other words, you, you, you're, they're my, they, without God, you have to become futile in your thinking because without God, the world doesn't make sense. And so you have to be inconsistent. You have to say one thing at one time and say something different at another because there's no way your world can fit together without God. And so they have to. They're forced. And the, the problem is, is what they don't see is that their brain is just is slowly tearing apart because they're, they're forcing themselves to believe inconsistent things. That on the one hand, there is no such thing as truth. And on the other hand, whatever I think is right is true. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Doesn't make sense. Consider a recent New York Times story, and um, I don't I don't want to make light of this because it's very sad. It's very sad, and I think the true victims in this cultural insanity that we are experiencing today is our children, because they're 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 growing up with no sense of what's right, wrong, and true, and they're basically being forced by, by parents and by the culture to make decisions that no child should ever have to make. But I mean, to, I believe, I mean, the, I'll just read it to you. New York Times story. A self-professed homosexual man married a transgender woman. Who, who claimed to be a man. So she's a transgender woman who claims to be a man, but biologically she's a woman. And, and a, a gay man married the woman who claims to be a man. Okay? Well, the transgendered woman who claims to be a man 
missed a couple of testosterone treatments and got pregnant. And of course, couldn't take the testosterone treatments while she was pregnant. But of course, because she claims to be a man, she claimed and still claims today that she was a pregnant man. And, and, they, and they claim very strongly then that therefore their child has two fathers. Okay? This is a true story. New York Times. Okay? Well, interestingly enough is that in the, one of the most liberal states of New York, on the child's birth certificate, New York birth certificate, you know what it says? One it lists as a father and one it lists as a mother. Why? Because despite all the name twisting and the confusion and the I claim this, I claim that. At the end of the day, even doctors know it's medically important to know who gave birth to that child. In other words, no matter how much we want to twist our minds to the edge of credulity, thinking, my goodness, on what, you know, how can we become so confused? And yet over and against all of this, Despite their unwillingness to see it, biologists are saying there is a difference between a man and a woman. And over against all the biologists, God is saying, in the beginning, I made them in my image. In the image of God, I created them male and female. I created them. You see? But... Think about it. When we cast off the concept of absolute truth, when we say, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth, and whatever you feel is right is true for you, what you do is you, you detach yourself from the, the, the harbor of God's truth, and you're left adrift at sea in the sea of relativism. And you, you have no anchor. And, you, and, and then you just get more and more confused and and there's been, there's interestingly been some backlash in the news recently because it's bothering enough um, pediatricians that these, these children who are a little bit confused because, to fit the cultural pressure of the day, if a child is even just a little bit confused because of all they're seeing in the media, people, psychologists are encouraging their parents to give them hormone-blocking drugs to delay them until they can figure out what they want to be. And it's hurting the children because they're you know, 10, 11, 12 years old making, and their parents are forcing them to make a life-changing decision because we don't even know the effects, the permanent effects that these hormone blockers are going to have on these kids. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So apart from God, we are lost in a sea of relativism. And what happens when we turn away from worshiping God, the only logical consequence is that we worship God. Creator, creation. When we turn away from worshiping, worshiping the Creator, the only left thing left to worship is the creation. That's why Paul says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creeping things. 
So we don't want to worship God so we can worship something else. So we can worship our gender identity. So we can worship our supposed sexual identity. So we can worship anything. In other words, you, you can't not worship. Everybody's going to worship. We all worship. It's not a matter of if you worship. It's a matter of what you worship. And so and that brings us to our last part, and that is identifying our idolatry. The truth is here is that one way to think about all sin is that all sin is idolatry. And so we can and do see the moral insanity going on in the world around us. But idolatry is not out, just out there either. It's also in here. It's in all of us. So what are ways that we can identify idolatry in our lives? The first is this. Matthew six nineteen through 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up your, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So one way to track our hearts or to, uh, to, to uh, investigate our idols is by the treasure principle. That is, we can track our hearts by tracking our treasure. We can track our hearts by tracking our treasure. So... This is a good time for us to just think about our lives and to think about our hearts before the Lord. How can we track our treasure to examine our hearts before the Lord? Well, what are thing, the way we track our treasure is to think about things that you can spend. What are some things that you can spend? Time, uh, uh, energy, physical and mental energy. And uh, money and resources, of course. So first, our time. Track, our, track the treasure of our time. The question that we can ask ourselves is this. How do we spend our time? Because, again, how we spend things uh, is how, we're sp- is how we spend our time is, is our time is treasure. And so our heart, Jesus says, follows our treasure. So... How does our time in uh, church attendance, in Bible study, in prayer, in time with other believers, in evangelism, and in investing in others, compare to time we do other things? How, does that, how do they compare? Another thing to think about is this. Of course, many of you work, and so a lot of the time, a lot of your, your time you're spending work. But the Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So in other words, that doesn't mean that, well, you can't say, well, pastor, you know, of course I'm going to spend most time doing work and then doing that. But look, work, according to the Bible, is a spiritual endeavor. So the question then is, how are you spending your time at work? Are you serving the Lord or man? Are you serving the Lord or a paycheck? How much time do you spend the thing, how much time do you spend doing things consciously for the Lord? And so that is that I'm not just talking about Bible study and prayer, although hopefully you're spending time doing those things, but I'm saying anything and everything that we do, 
and that we spend our time on, is it done as an exercise in worship to the Lord, or is God just an afterthought? Another way we can track our treasure is our, is our mental energy. What do we think about? The Lord gave me this, and I think it's a sobering thought. And sometimes I think this, I don't know why I think this will happen. There's no evidence in the Bible. For some reason, I feel like this could happen. And that is, but, you know, it's just speculation. But just imagine that, some, that at the end of our life, we find out that the whole time God has a giant tape recorder. And he has recorded every moment of our life. But, of course, it is a divine tape recorder, which means it does not just record what you say and what you do, but it also records every thought that comes through your brain. And it verbalizes it so everybody can hear it. Now, imagine this tape recorder, at the end of days, it's being played back. What things... What kind of things, if we played back the tape recorder of my life, the tape recorder of your life, not just your words and your deeds, because we all know we can, we can modify those depending on who's around us. The question is, what will, that, what, will the tape record, what will the tape recorder sound for our ears, the things that we were saying to ourselves? What will it say? What will it say? What we think about, what we dwell on, what we, what we spend mental energy on, that's treasure. And what we think about, uh, we, can, we can track our heart that way. And of course, we can track our heart and, and search for idols in our heart by watching our money. And of course, this, that's actually what Jesus in that, in that passage was actually talking about. He was actually talking about money. He goes on to say, you can't serve God in money. So the question is, of course, you can, you can find out what somebody treasures by examining our money. Do we, are we generous? Now, of course, I, you know, if, if you're a member of this church, you have covenanted to say, I'm going to support the ministries of the church. But there's other things, too. Um, are we giving money to spread the gospel? Are we giving money uh, to meet needs? Are we spending money on, on hospitality to show others the love of Christ? And how do these relate proportionally to things we spend on other things for just personal comfort, ease, and entertainment? Now, of course, I'm not presuming that those things are bad. In fact, if you haven't spent a lot of time with your family, it may be a spiritual thing to go spend some time together on vacation. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, it's, one, it's a heart issue, and two, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we, we, sh- we can and we should, and I think Jesus invites us, is asking us to. He's saying, watch, watch and see. And from time to time, it's always good for us to go back and examine and say, you know, when I was in youth, when I was in high school, the, uh, the, the youth pastor's wife did this... Um, well, we didn't know it was it was a, we didn't know what it was at first. But we were in the middle of the youth uh, youth one Wednesday night, and the cops came in and they they arrested her and they took her out of the church. And we were like, "What in the world is happening?" 
And they said, well, well, you know, we're arresting her for being a Christian. And her, and this was, but this was her point. She's saying, if you got accused of being a Christian and they put you in a court of law, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Is the way, is the way you talk, people hear you talk, if they went back and looked at your bank accounts, if they went back and checked other things in their life, would there be enough evidence to say, oh yeah, he was a Christian? Or would it be questionable? You can, you can examine our, your life by your treasure. And so Jesus, I believe, invites us to all of us to search out these idols in our lives and to recalibrate ourselves back to him, to, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just with part. Another way we can examine our treasure is the next part of that passage, which I mentioned briefly. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for he will, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, what Jesus is Another way to kind of generalize this is what Jesus is saying is that there's a way to serve money that there's a way to serve money that should be the way you're serving God. So what's one way people serve money? Well, one way people serve money is they serve it because they think if I can just get more of it in my life, then I'll be really happy. Well, if you think about it, that's how we're supposed to serve God. We're supposed to view God in such a way to say, man, if I can just get more of him in my life, then I'll be truly happy. You see? That's worship. But see, when we put, that, when we put something else in the place of God, we're still worshiping. We've just put something else in God's place. And so there's a way to serve something as if it's your God. And, many, and Jesus said that many people do this with money. But of course, the question is, what do we serve? In other words, what do we serve? What are we seeking in such a way and with a heart and attitude that is saying, if I just have it, I'll be happy. Of course, many people do this with money, but of course it could be anything, you know. For some people, it could be um, a spouse or a relationship. Think about the woman at the well. Jesus said, you have, you've had five husbands and the, husband, and the one you have now is not your husband. It's easy and it's... It, it's very, it's, it's not uncommon at all today to see people in and out of relationships and, and, and it's heartbreaking because many, because it's evident they think, oh, if I could just find the right person, then I'll be really happy. You see? And Jesus says, God's saying, only I can do that. Me, just me. But we pursue it in something else could be children. No one said it had to be bad things. It could be children. These things are always hard to discern, and so, you know, I'm not making a judgment, but just from my perception, I, I, I knew a, a lady one time, and it just, at least from the outside looking in, it just appeared that she had um, an unhealthy need for the approval of her children. And so because of this, she would literally give them anything they wanted. And throw these outrageous parties and, um, and, you know, do all kinds of crazy stuff and take them all kinds of places. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with that, but it just, it seemed to me from the outside looking in that she could not stand the thought of one of her children being displeased with her. In other words, what was she doing? She was serving her children because if my children really like their mom, then I'll be really happy. You see? 
She was serving something to make her happy. And God says, only I can do that. Could be respect. Could be fame or notoriety. Could be ease, a carefree, nice and easy life. The question is, at the very bottom and at the very core of our life, what are we seeking? What are we serving? What are we looking at and saying, man, if I just had that, then I would be truly happy. And if it's not God, it's false worship. And here's the the most terrible thing about false worship. It's this, is that some people spend their whole lives, their whole lives, pursuing happiness from something that could never give it to them all along. You hear it all the time. Famous celebrities, all the money they could ask for, they're miserable. Miserable. Other questions that we can ask. Other questions that we could ask. Um, Is there something that if it happened would cause you to sin or that you would be willing to sin to get? Uh, Another way, what makes you the most angry? What, when you get the most angry, what is it that you're wanting that you're not getting? What would be utterly unbearable if you lost it? What do you fear the most or worry about the most? What do you love the most? What do you hate the most? These are all questions that we can ask um, to search your own hearts. And I think it's incumbent upon us all from time to time to search our hearts, to ask these questions, and to ask if God is the core, the center. Is, is God the one we're serving? Is God the one we are truly worshiping? Because it's so subtle and it's so dangerous. And God, over and against all these things, He's saying, you were made for me. You were made for me. I'll close with this quote, and, um, and we'll be finished. Uh, I, I've read it before, but it's, it's, worth, it's worth reading again. It says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and all the friends you ever had on earth, And all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And so it just, it searches us to ask who or what is our real treasure. And we who call on the name of the Lord, we know who our treasure is. We know. It's our Lord. It's our Savior. It's our Christ. But from time to time, he calls us to look at ourselves and examine ourselves and to call us back to himself. The author of Hebrews says, don't you know the Lord disciplines those whom he loves? And so if we are his children, 
then from time to time he will call us back to himself, but only because he loves us and only because he wants to give us 